welcome to this special edition of the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Global Dialogue Speaker Program. We are glad you've joined us today for this important conversation. I'm Patrick Ryan. Before we start, a very quick note about the Council. We're a unique organization in Tennessee, an independent, nonpartisan educational association that works to inform our community about the world. We're based in Nashville at Belmont University and are a tax-exempt nonprofit that is not funded by any government. We rely on you to produce important programs like this speaker's program and our education outreach to high school and university students. So please consider our public service worthy of your support with your contributions at tnwac.org donate. And thanks to the attendees of today's program who made a donation when registering. One housekeeping note, please ask questions. That's why we're here live. We'd appreciate your participation and you can use the uh, Q&A screen on the tab on your Zoom screen uh, to get your questions into the queue. Uh, today, uh, we find uh, the situation to be uh, quite uh, distressing. It's an unprovoked war underway in Europe. Ukraine is on fire. It is being eaten by a hungry Putin regime that has stated his animus toward the West and aims to restore the Russian Empire. Ukrainians are paying the price. Today, we will follow up on the conversations we've had with Ambassador John Kornblum on the Ukraine crisis. He has been gracious with his time on three previous occasions within the last month to talk about this unfolding catastrophe. Those programs like this one will be found on our channel at youtube.com slash TNWAC. Now the war has come to Europe, his insights and analyses are more important than ever. Ambassador John C. Kornblum has a long record of service in the United States and Europe, both as a diplomat and as a businessman. He is recognized as an eminent expert on US-European political and economic relations, in particular in Central and Eastern Europe. He served as the US ambassador to Germany from 1997 to 2001. Before that, he occupied a number of high-level diplomatic posts, including US Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Special Envoy for the Dayton Peace Process, U.S. Ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Deputy U.S. Ambassador to NATO, and U.S. Minister and Deputy Commandant of Forces in Divided Berlin. And we're honored to have him as a member of the World Affairs Council's President's Advisory Board. I welcome Ambassador Kornblum. Thank you very much, Patrick. Happy to be with you. Let's uh, quickly jump in here. The second full day of uh, the Russian invasion and attack without any provocation is ending. Uh, what is your reaction to what has been happening? Well, as you said, it's without any provocation. It is a, a unique event, which we thought would never again happen, at least in modern Europe, but it has. Uh, and uh, Ukraine is under attack from many directions by Russian forces seems to be holding its own better than we thought, feared it would. But of course, it's, uh, it's facing one of the world's largest uh, military uh, organizations. So it's gonna be a very difficult situation for Ukraine in the months to come. Uh, for us, it's important to understand why this, is, why this is something that we are paying so much attention to, other than the fact that it's an unprovoked military attack. It also, of course, is an attack against democracy because the real problems that Russia has with Ukraine or with the Republic of Georgia or some other countries 
is not that they are a military threat to Russia as Putin tries to uh, describe, but because they are a political civilizational threat. These are countries who looked around the world and said, we want to, we want to be part of the West, not the East. And this bothers Putin, I think both personally, but it also bothers the system that he has sought to build within Russia, which is not based on democracy, but rather on autocracy. Uh, the uh, the current situation in uh, in Ukraine after after two days is uh, uh, is that uh, it looks as if uh, forces are moving on Kiev, uh, Kiev and uh, uh, U.S. intelligence officials are saying to uh, reporters that it could be 48 hours uh, before the uh, the Russians take the capital. Although this morning the Pentagon uh, did say that uh, the Russian forces were, were losing some momentum, but they have capacity to intensify their effort. Uh, the aim appears to be decapitation of the Ukrainian uh, government. What, what do you expect to see if the government falls and Russia takes the capital? Well, that seems to be their goal. They made a big point today of saying that they have no intention of permanently occupying Ukraine. I think what they hope to do is to establish a regime which is similar to the one in Belarus, which is totally dependent on them and totally follows their instructions, but to not to be directly in the country, that would be much, too much even for them to uh, pull off. Uh, that seems to be the case. Uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine is staying at his post very bravely and strongly. Uh, and uh, the question is, of course, uh, what would be his fate if the Russians came in and, and captured him? Uh, we don't uh, wish to think of the alternatives, but the Russians certainly would not want him to be politically active. And so uh, the next 48 hours, as you said, are going to be the decisive point, I think. The U Ukrainian forces are truly brave and pr truly in involved in maintaining the defense that they, as much as they can. But in the end, it's probably not likely that they'll be able to match the Russian forces, which are many times larger and many times more well-equipped than they are. And so it's the, the decisive point is probably going to come within the next 48 hours. Today's uh, reporting uh, suggests that there's conversations uh, going on between Zelensky and, and Moscow, uh, talks of demilitarization or statements of uh, uh, Ukraine becoming a non-aligned nation. What's, what's your take on the conversations that are going on? Are we uh, going to see uh, an appeasement of Moscow? I haven't seen any... Uh discussion of conversations, maybe I just haven't noticed it. What I have seen is Putin making an offer to Ukraine for uh, negotiations, which were based essentially on a total Ukraine uh, acquiescence to Russian demands. And Zelensky said, no, he was not interested in that. But maybe there are other conversations going on. I think that um, it's going to be very difficult. And Zelensky probably has in the back of his mind the reaction which, uh, which uh, erupted is the only word you could use in, in Ukraine uh, in 2014, when the then president tried to walk back an agreement which he had made with the European Union because Putin had told him to. And this ended up in a major, major uh, long, many weeks long demonstration and, and, and negative reaction in Kyiv. In the end, this president had to leave office and that was uh, when the new uh, era began in Ukraine. So it's not so simple. You just can't say, yes, okay, we give up because the population is in no mood to give up. Right. 
Um, the um, uh, the speech on Monday by Putin and, and Thursday morning uh, was uh, uh, particularly ominous, not just towards Ukraine, but uh, towards the, the West. Is it too obvious to ask if we're in a new Cold War? Well, we're in a new uh, era, let's put it that way. I was, uh, I spent most of my working life, uh, shall we say, operating the Cold War. And so I don't think that you can call whatever comes next now a Cold War. It will be, uh, it'll be a different kind of cooperation or, or confrontation rather, I didn't mean cooperation, confrontation, which uh, in which uh, there are probably no shots fired as it was the case in the Cold War, but it, it, it will have a different kind of structure to it than it, partially because Russia is not the Soviet Union and China is not Mao Zedong's China. They are totally different operations. And so there'll be a totally different approach. The interesting thing is that much of what we're talking about right now in the way things are working or what the so-called world order is going to be are probably already overtaken by events and will disappear anyway within the next 15 or so years because we're coming into a new age, a digital integrated network-oriented age in which things such as global supply chains and high-speed data networks and things like that will be the things which determine a country's influence and power more than the military forces. And so, and this is where Russia is losing out. It has absolutely no role in this new world at all, nor will it have if it keeps going the way it is now. And so we have to always have in the back of our minds that while we're dealing here now with, shall we say, a 20th century style confrontation, the world is actually building around this confrontation, a 21st century style network interconnected uh, global structure, which will make it very, very difficult for a country like Russia to maintain its standing uh, with Putin or without Putin, with military forces or without Putin. It will be, it will be, uh, reduced to that being an, a, a raw material supplier. And in its major raw material, petroleum and gas are ones that are being phased out in the world. So Russia's future is act, actually quite bleak uh, if you look at it from the, from the longer term developments. And that's why to call it a cold war is not quite the, the right um, term, but it will be a, an immense confrontation which is going on and competition between the authoritarian countries, namely Russia and China, and the Western democracies, which are mainly the United States and Europe. And that's why this is so important to us, not because we want Ukraine to be a democratic state, which we do, but the real story here is, is who is going to have the, high, the upper hand in the new order which is coming, which is the network digital order. And how, how should we view the, uh, the response from Europe, the U.S., and NATO? Has uh, a heavy enough price uh, been inflicted on Moscow uh, since the invasion started? I think that the Western reaction has been almost amazing. Uh, this is not uh, – Western democracies always have a problem when dealing with autocratic countries because the dictator in these countries can just tell – say what's going to happen, and then it happens for better or worse. We always had to debate it out, first in our own countries and then with our allies. And I think that given that fact, the amount of unity and the, and the concreteness of the 
plans which have been set forward has been um, approaching amazing. And uh, what's the mood in, in uh, Berlin? You come to us uh, from Berlin, Germany uh, today and uh, uh, as the former ambassador to Germany, I'm assuming you uh, have your finger on the pulse of what's happening there. Well, I don't know about that, but I have been talking to lots of people. I think that there is a phase now of realization in Germany that they took for granted the peace which came after the end of the Cold War 30 years ago that they were not enough aware of the various tensions and problems which existed, and above all, that they were not well prepared for the kind of confrontation that we're having now. The German military forces, as we know, are pretty weak, underfunded, undertrained, underequipped. But also, Germany has made itself dependent on Russia for its energy supplies. 55% of its gas supply comes from Russia, and it has also established, structured its economy to depend a lot on trade relations with countries like Russia and China. Uh, these are structures which seem to be a little bit more uh, uncertain than they were six months ago. And uh, the, the sanctions have not yet included uh, uh, removing Russia from the SWIFT system, the uh, banking right. system that allows uh, transfers across uh, borders. Um, uh, what's, what's going on with that as far as a European uh, hesitancy? Well, that's, that's the real, shall we say, nuclear option, as people say. It's controversial in Europe, but also in the United States, by the way. There are several um, eminent people who have said it wouldn't really work for the United States either because we have so many other things that we try and fit into it. Uh, but at the moment, however, it looks as if movement would have been possible towards a closing of the SWIFT system to Russia. And that movement was stopped by uh, Russia, uh, Germany and uh, Italy, and also Cyprus, which as we know, essentially lives from Russian banks anyway. And so um, there's been a, quite a bit of debate about it. The Germans are saying, no, there's a lot of the things we have to think about, and the Italians too. Some people are calling this the, uh, the second chapter of Nord Stream 2 the, of Germany. There's a lot of hard feelings against Germany, especially from Eastern Europe about this. So this is an example of the problems that democracies have. Nobody is forced to say what they are expected to say. Nobody is forced to do what they're expected to do. And so sometimes you have these debates, and this is one of them. The Ukrainians, uh, uh, at least uh, according to anecdotal information and, and remarks by uh, President Zelensky, uh, see the West as uh, dithering while it's being taken apart. Is, uh, are, are they right? Should, uh, should uh, we have taken off the table the option to, uh, to provide uh, direct uh, support? Well, you know, again, that's the point I just made, dithering. I can, if I were President Zelensky, I would be exactly as uh, tough and exactly as disappointed in the West as he is. So I'm not uh, questioning his words, but uh, this is what you have when you have democracies as, 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 as protectors. It's very hard for us to move forward in one way. And you know, for President Biden, I think he's really been extremely courageous on this, but you have to remember that uh, polls, at least that I've seen over the past four weeks or so, have suggested that oh, well over 60% of the Americans asked about Ukraine either don't know what it is or where it is or don't want to have any engagement there. So, you know, these people who run democracies are also elected. And so they have to make sure that they maintain their, their 
political standing at home also. Mark uh, Zashin asks, what more can the Biden administration do? Well, what the Biden administration could do would be to move towards, I think my own view is to uh, closing the SWIFT system to the Russians. It could also uh, increase um, the weapons deliveries to Ukraine, assuming there's still Ukraine there to have weapons delivered to. And it could uh, already be thinking of, and I may, I'm sure they are, I'm not saying they're not, but the next step has to be, how do you put this thing back together? And the world is not gonna live for the next two years with a Russian um, campaign against Ukraine. The Russians are going to run out of resources sooner or later, they'll run out of uh, interest. And the question is, the system which was set up 30 years ago to try and guarantee cooperation and security after the end of the Cold War has now collapsed completely. So we need a new system. So that's what I hope what the administration is working hard to think about how to move towards this new system. Uh, Paul Love asked, do you expect the government to move out of the capital to uh, continue to lead the resistance? Um, I guess this is an unanswerable uh, question from the outside as to what uh, Zelensky will do as, uh, as the Russians continue to encircle the capital. Yeah, I think it's unanswerable. I think probably even Zelensky doesn't know at this moment. I think that they have built up structures in Lviv, which is the largest city in the western part of Ukraine. In fact, the American embassy has moved there. And so uh, I think that's an option, which he may take. I mean, I really don't know what's going to happen. Uh, an interesting thing, I'm gonna say this just as an aside, that part of Ukraine was not a member, uh, not a part of the Soviet Union until 1945, when, they, when in, the Russians grabbed it as part of the border adjustments which took place then. And after they became part of the Soviet Union, there was a guerrilla movement active and successful in that Western part of Ukraine until the late 1950s, believe it or not. So that's a part of the country which really has no interest in being closely aligned to Russia or being part of Russia. Talking about uh, countries related to Russia, another uh, participant asked, should Belarus also be sanctioned? I think so. I think Belarus is nothing but an extension of Russia right now. And uh, Belarus is, uh, 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 the, the president of Belarus stays in office at the uh, whims of the Russians. So I think that Belarus should be, put, be, should be treated as part of the Russian strategy and part of the Russian uh, resources. And, all of the leading people in Belarus should be uh, sanctioned as strongly and as firmly as the Russians are. We, uh, we have one question about uh, uh, taking direct sanctions against uh, Putin and someone asked if he should be uh, uh, given war criminal status. You know, we're, we're uh, constrained by the fact that uh, Russia has a seat on the UN Security Council. So the UN uh, sanction uh, capability is, is somewhat limited in that regard. But uh, talking about Putin, um, he, uh, he did make statements that uh, suggest he was willing to escalate to the point of threatening the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, what, sh what should our reaction be to, to that level of, uh, of threats against the West? Um, you know, he, he said specifically that uh, uh, anyone who threatens Russia um, or Russian people should know Russia's response will be, quote, immediate and will lead to the consequences that you have never faced in your history, unquote. What's, what's your take on, uh, on that kind of uh, statement? I think it's just talk, basically. 
But the, the real issue is, and this has always been the great, one of the great fears movies have been made about it, uh, how rational is the leader who has his finger on the tri trigger. And uh, no Russian leader could ever wish to use nuclear weapons because the, uh, the response would be, would be massive. But uh, you just can't, simply can't be sure. This is, that's why this is a dangerous point. And that's why it's important also for our own country to be uh, concerned about it because these weapons do exist. Russia has more than we do right now, as far as I know, partially because we built down really substantially after the end of the Cold War and Russia didn't. Russia has, st has stationed new short-term weapons short, uh, in, in the part of Russia, which is surrounded by Poland and Lithuania. Kaliningrad would used to be East Prussia in Germany. There are short range weapons there, which uh, could, uh, could reach Berlin, for example. So uh, this, is not a, this is not a, um, an, a theoretical problem. Also, a good deal has been made about the fact that the Russians uh, made it a point to, shall we say, capture Chernobyl the reactor, which has been encased in a uh, cement uh, cocoon for the past uh, 25 or 30 years. And the question is, what would they want to do with that? Uh, they, could, they could also threaten with release of radiation, although that would hurt Russia more than it would anybody else. So, uh, but the fact that they have it is not, shall we say, a comforting thought. Right. A number of questions about uh, how the U.S. should proceed. You know, there have been weapon shipments uh, going into Ukraine up until the point of the invasion from uh, the United States and uh, the U.K. and and some others. Um, how, how do you see this playing out if uh, if Putin is successful in in uh, Ukraine uh, in terms of uh, support to any resistance? Uh, uh, safe havens in, in nearby NATO countries. What, what are we likely to see uh, at the end of uh, this operation? That's a very good question. And I don't think anybody has a good answer to it. It depends a little bit on the behavior of the Ukrainian people. They are truly dedicated to, de to defending their country. If anybody wonders whether Ukraine is really a separate country, you simply have to see the reaction of the people there in the last few weeks. And there are right now, brigades of people who are, shall we say, past their physical prime, who are out carrying guns and driving trucks and doing whatever to try and keep the army going. So that means we don't know how they would react afterwards. I think probably they would not take it lying down, as we would say. I think that, there, that a, a, anything resembling a Russian occupation would be uh, bothered with uh, uh, Ukrainian counter-reaction all the time. Right. Uh, one aspect of this that uh, needs to be explored a little bit is the relationship between Moscow and Beijing. Uh, uh, Putin, yes. went, Putin went to uh, Beijing uh, at the opening of the Olympics uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, they released a strong statement of uh, solidarity. However, we know that uh, China is concerned about interference in, uh, in sovereign states, and they've stated that uh, Ukraine is a sovereign state. Uh, Tim Douglas asks, uh, do you think the initiative by the Russians will have any impact on the Chinese? And adds uh, what, what impact that uh, it might have on their thinking about Taiwan? Yeah, that's a question which is being asked. We don't know, of course, but so far, the signs from China are exactly the opposite, that they wouldn't use this as, a, for example, as an excuse to move on Taiwan, that, um, that they uh, are 
truly unhappy about the way Russia has uh, violated many principles which they themselves consider important because they live, as you know, in a very difficult neighborhood. And they also have a population which is very hard to control. They also have many minorities who are not exactly happy to be in China. So China is interested above all in stability. But you see the difference, that's a, this is a point that we might focus on a bit. The difference between China and Russia other than size and all the other things is that China is a nation on the rise, a nation which has mastered the new technological age, which is challenging the United States for the leadership of this new technological age. And Russia is a nation in steady and probably uh, unchangeable decline. It has not at all kept up with the new digital age. It does not have political support. Putin is, uh, there are one or two polling agencies in Russia which are still more or less acceptable, uh, more or less believable. And his, his poll numbers go down considerably all the time. And so the, the, the mentality and the situation, the, the, the time of life, shall we call it, between Russia and China is very much different. And one of the reasons that, as I said, that this isn't a Cold War is that in, in the, the Cold War, which was really just with the Soviet Union, we had a Soviet Union which was totally cut off from the rest of the world, was totally autarkic in its economic life, which had no trade to speak of with any Western countries. And, uh, and we could, shall we say, isolate it. Uh, we can't isolate China that way at all, because after all, many of the major American uh, internet companies and, and high-tech countries make all their products in China. And so there's a whole different relationship between us and China than the, than the one between us and Russia. And so I don't think that there's that much correspondence between the two that they can somehow form a common front. What they do agree on is their rejection of democracy, of pluralistic societies, of the rights of minorities, all of these things which are so important to Western countries, both Russia and China reject. In, uh, in other uh, aspects of what could happen as a result of, of this uh, situation, uh, we're concerned about the Baltic states and uh, they, they are part of NATO as well as Poland. Uh, we're beefing up the uh, American presence there and, and our NATO allies are as well. What, uh, what would you tell people about the, uh, the potential for escalation beyond Ukraine and Putin's statements uh, to the effect that he wanted to restore uh, the, the Russian uh, empire includes the Baltic states? What, what should we be talking to our allies there about? Well, luckily um, we were able to, and I'm sure Putin is angry about this because he was in power when we did this, we were able to slip the Baltic states into NATO without the Russians causing too much uh, uproar. So the Baltic states are now in NATO, as is Romania, as is Poland. And so uh, any move against them would be a move against NATO. Article five of whose treaty says that an attack on one country is attack on all. So the United States would be bound by a treaty to get involved. And the president has already said that we will defend NATO territory. So it's, it's a big step for Russia. The Baltic states are small, but the step to move against the Baltic states would be a major, major step for Russia. It would be war against the United States. And I, I don't think even Putin in his um, 
poorest moments believes that he wants to have a war against the United States. You're uh, you're up to date on uh, the energy situation. Uh, uh, I know from previous conversations we've had here. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the uh, the impact uh, in Western Europe? You know, the uh, Chancellor of Germany had said Nord Stream Two is uh, is dead. The uh, pipeline uh, for natural gas uh, through the Baltic Sea to Germany. Um, what uh, what should we be looking for in terms of uh, consequences for Western Europe of the uh, the stop of uh, energy supplies, and and what does that mean uh, to Russia? You talked about uh, Moscow turning to Beijing for oil, and that uh, that would be uh, a problem. But uh, comment uh, if you could about the impact of this uh, uh, this invasion on the uh, the energy distribution system. Well, as far as I know, Russia has not stopped deliveries of, of either gas or oil to Western Europe. But it is true that as the, shall we say, tensions were building over the fall, Russia did not do what it usually does in the winter and did not, as they say, top up its reservoirs in Western Europe. Russia, uh, Gazprom over the past uh, five or 10 years, whatever it is, has become the largest uh, purveyor of gas and, and especially gas, but also oil in Europe. It has rented massive storage capacity, mostly in Germany, which has a lot of these caverns underneath its surface. And the gas is stored in these underground caverns. And so uh, there has been over the years, no question of the supply because a lot of it was stored in Europe and mostly in Germany. This year they didn't do that. They didn't fill up their storage, and 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 the uh, deliveries have been less than expected in some places, and the prices have gone up considerably. And so we already have an, a a, a a reaction or a consequence of all of these tensions, and that is that Europe's gas supply is less than it should be. Germany uh, in a normal year has gotten 55% of its gas from Russia, which is much too much. We did during the Reagan administration told them that that was a fool's errand to do that. And they said, don't worry, we'll never become dependent on them. Well, they are dependent on them. But the, the uh, Biden administration has already started plans both to, uh, to round up gas supplies and to set up a system to make sure that the gas gets to uh, Europe so that Europe doesn't freeze and starve in the, in the winter. And a, and a major partner in this is the uh, kingdom, I guess you would call it, of uh, Qatar, which is one of the largest gas producers in the world. That's why they're, they're so rich with such a small country. And they have already um, entered into contractual arrangements with, I think with us, I'm not quite sure who, who the contracts are with, but they have, given, in fact, it's sort of an honorary title, something like um, our um, preferred uh, close gas supplier or something like that. And, and so uh, this is where the Biden administration has been really quite on top of things to help uh, make sure that the gas supplies do not run out in Europe. Luckily, we're coming to the end of the winter now. And so it's not going to be as bad as if, if this were November, it would really be difficult, but now we're in, now we're, winter should be over quite soon. So the number the amount of gas that's required will be less than if it were in the winter. Yeah, Qatar is certainly uh, uh, a player in, in this equation. And, and I recall that uh, last month, uh, a U.S. diplomat was talking about uh, providing 
uh, gas supplies and that uh, Qatar was designated a, a major non-NATO ally. Uh, right. Speaking of NATO, uh, uh, Christopher Reiser asked, do you see a NATO country uh, military buildup in the cards? And, and I heard a commentator earlier today in a conversation mention that uh, you could put the entire British standing army in Wembley Stadium and have 30,000 empty seats. Um, what... Uh, what should we be looking at as NATO's response in terms of kinetic power uh, as a result of this? And Michael Watson uh, asks, uh, what are the uh, concrete plans the West is supporting and mentions that you referred to uh, NATO unity and Western unity as amazing? That's right. But uh, we should uh, take that with a grain of salt because as you said, uh, the entire British military, it's not the British army, the entire military establishment could fit into Wembley Stadium. Uh, and uh, what has happened is the following. The United States was always the major contributor to NATO going back into the 1950s. And in fact, NATO was important in the 1950s. It changed its role in the 1950s. It was still, of course, a bulwark against Russia. But NATO was also then seen as the, shall we say, the balancing wheel for Europe, which allowed Europe to move ahead with the European Union because uh, the Europeans to this day still don't really trust each other and above all, they don't trust Germany. And so the American military presence in Europe is as much a structure of trust for the Europeans among each other, so that which allows them to cooperate with each other as it is a defense against any outside uh, attack. So America is always going to be the major, major part of NATO. I think at the moment, the figure that people use is that we we contribute about 80% of the forces and we spend about, and we contribute about 80% of the budget of NATO. So it is really our organization. But that doesn't mean that the other countries can't make important contributions and can't help us with the management of whatever the tasks are. I spent, as you mentioned in your introduction, I spent uh, almost four years working very hard on the Dayton Peace Agreement and the uh, end of the Bosnian War. And uh, after the signing of the Bosnian, the so-called Dayton Agreement, we uh, moved a, in one of the most amazing uh, military operations, I think that I probably would ever see, we moved a force of 50,000 people over the Christmas holiday into Bosnia on the basis of NATO. And that force included soldiers from many other countries, including by the way, Russia, the one time in history, maybe the last, sad to say, that Russian forces were under NATO command. And the reason I mention this is because that couldn't have happened without the very strong support of the NATO military establishments. However strong the United States is, we didn't have the capacity, especially the transport capacity to do something like that. So NATO is an American organization. It lives and dies on American support. But America can't do everything, and the uh, European contribution is always very worthwhile. And for if no other reason, simply the interchange, the discussion, the, also the arguments that we have are very important also for the United States to understand what its role should be. The um, 
the contribution of Europeans to defense was uh, criticized by the previous administration. Uh, where, where do you see the contributions now? Have uh, the European countries that were criticized uh, by that administration uh, stepped up? And also, uh, Christopher Reiser asks, what effect did the previous administration's uh, weakening of alliance contribute to the decision to invade Ukraine? Well, I think that first, answer the last question first, I think you know, we don't know I'll say this is somewhat uh, speculative thing. We don't know the contacts between the last president and the current president of Russia, do we? Uh, we don't know uh, what the uh, what the assessments are. But I think it's easy to say, or it's it's accurate to say, that during the last administration, the Russians probably got the uh, very strong impression that uh, the West was on the rocks, that Western unity was collapsing and that the United States was gonna withdraw its support of NATO. Uh, they would have had to been blind not to see that. And so that's why when I use the word amazing, that's what I mean. If you go from that low point, which was just a bit more than a year ago, uh, down to um, the, the show of unity that we've had over the past few days and, and weeks with uh, the, uh, the Ukraine issue, you can see in fact, how deep the relationships are in NATO and how strong the ties are. I spent many years of my working diplomatic life working either with NATO or as part of NATO. And I can tell you it is, a, it is really a very, very positive organization which the United States should want to keep as active and as, uh, as well-functioning as possible. We have a question from A.G. Norman who uh, says that uh, uh, Stoltenberg at NATO just uh, suggested, I haven't seen this report, so I'm taking uh, this uh, as it comes, uh, that NATO will provide both humanitarian and military support to Ukraine. Uh, what do you think that means or should mean? And I guess uh, a connected question to the humanitarian support, is there going to be uh, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of refugees from Ukraine? And we're already seeing lines at the border uh, into uh, Poland and uh, Romania. Um, comment, if you could, on the impact of, of more refugees in Europe after the waves we've seen in recent years that uh, in some places have caused uh, political instability. Well, um, both Poland and Romania have already made really massive commitments to take refugees from Ukraine. Poland, I think, I may be wrong, but the, the number 500,000 sticks in my head. And... Um, and Romania has made something very similar. So uh, they are ready for this. And they are, um, I think the, the countries involved, Germany is always very welcoming to, uh, to refugees from uh, countries like this. But um, we have to remember that um, a country like Poland needs these people. In fact, Poland has been hiring Ukrainians uh, quite, quite uh, steadily over the past five years to fill its own labor shortages. We're in a, a totally different era of history also as far as the, the meaning of work and the, and the organization of work is commanded. We, we read about you know, home office and what Karol has done to the uh, organization of companies and things like that. But population movements are probably going to be taking place anyway over the next years because of the the places where work is, is available are not going to necessarily have anything to do with national borders. Sure. 
Mark Zashin uh, makes a comment about the uh, close uh, familial relationships uh, between many Russians and Ukrainians. And I know you have insight into uh, Ukraine and, and uh, culture and society there. How do you think the Russian population is going to respond to this action in Ukraine um, and, and the bloodshed in Ukraine, and, as well as uh, uh, Russian uh, military uh, casualties coming home? Well, you're right, I do have very close links to Ukraine through my wife, who is 100% Ukrainian. Um, but it's very interesting the way, that, the way that Putin has described it, it seems designed to do exactly the opposite, to drive Ukraine away from Russia. On the one hand, he says, we are brothers, you are part of the Russian uh, culture, it's really, it's unnatural to that day Ukraine is separate from Russia, but then he invades them and starts killing them. And so there's no love lost for Russia in Ukraine. Uh, there, is, there is a substantial portion of the population who still speaks Russian as their first language. But I have seen from personal experience and also from what I've read and heard that these, this mixture of languages is, uh, it's not even an issue. People just talk whatever, speak whatever language they feel like speaking. And there are even dialects, which are mixtures of Russian and Ukrainian who people out in the countryside speak. So this is something which Putin has cooked up. And even Russian commentators are scratching their heads, wondering where he has gotten his historical uh, precedence for the, the kind of relationship he argues that exists between Russia and Ukraine. And so, it's going to be a very human thing. There's no question about that. But it's not gonna be a human thing in the way that Putin seems to be portraying it. And, and uh, he you know, is going even a step further, which is truly off the wall in saying that his goal is to protect Russian citizens from the fascist governments which exist in, in uh, Ukraine. Well, there's no fascist government in Ukraine. In fact, the, uh, the president is a uh, Jewish origin, so right. he's certainly not a fascist. So, uh, or, or a, a Nazi, as, uh, as Putin uh, claimed, that uh, the, the, the goal was that's right. denazification. Denazification. So this is, that's why I'm saying it's very hard to understand what's going on right now, because this starts bordering on the irrational. And we don't really want to have a Russian president who's irrational for the reasons we discussed earlier. But uh, some of the things he's saying just don't fit into any realistic picture of what's going on. Let's talk about uh, the uh, implications for the United States. Uh, I, I'm not sure to what extent uh, the government, uh, the Biden administration has prepared Americans for any sort of uh, backlash that might result from this. Economically, we're looking at uh, energy and commodity prices going up. Uh, we're already facing inflation. Uh, there's uh, the question of uh, cyber attacks. If the sanctions against Russia uh, bite particularly hard, there's uh, always the possibility of, of cyber against uh, U.S. institutions or infrastructure. Uh, we recall last year the uh, attack against the Colonial Pipeline providing gas and jet fuel to the southeast. What, uh, what should Americans be concerned about, uh, particularly in the area of cyber? Well, I think you, you really put your finger on a very important point. I think that regardless of what happens in this military uh, situation, we, as I said before, we are coming into a new era. And this new era is going to include, or it's going to have to include 
a redefinition of the concept of warfare. Uh, sabotage has always been a aspect of warfare. Armies going back to the Romans uh, went out and sabotaged their opponents uh, secretly and non-militarily, shall we say. But now the new tools allow uh, sabotage uh, from a long distance and, and not just against uh, some troops or some power stations or whatever, but you could, you could, you could destroy the entire power structure of a country, I mean, electric power of a country. Some people have asked, well, if, if Russia seems to be so backwards, why is it so good in cyber warfare? Well, unfortunately, the answer is, of course, that Russia is, not, is a country of very educated people. Its scientific and, and mathematical talents have been well known for 100 or more years. And they've all been put to work on, for criminal purposes. They have not been put to work to set up new Googles or Sun Microsystems or Cisco's or whatever in Russia. There are these kind of companies don't exist in Russia. What does exist, however, are massive hacking or operations, ha massive hacking uh, cyber warfare operations. My impression is, without knowing any facts at all, that the United States has been very active in understanding these things and countering to the, them to the, expect, the extent it can be countered. And we are not unprepared for what could be happening. And I think we've been, in fact, very much on top of it. But it doesn't mean that this new kind of warfare isn't going to spread over the coming years. And you know, again, this situation in Ukraine is going to come to some sort of collusion, conclusion, maybe a bad one or hopefully a good one. But the, the, the challenges of this new digital age, which I mentioned before, are going to be with us for the next century. And so it's going to be very important that we not simply take a deep breath if the military confrontation ends, because the confrontation will continue on a different, on a different level, probably as long as any of us can think into the future. In a future uh, Ukraine that uh, uh, could be uh, dominated by a Russia, a pro-Russian uh, leader in Kiev. Uh, where, where would the, how would the international community react to a government that has stood up in Kiev post uh, Zelensky as a result of uh, this military action? Well, we would, you know, we would treat it correctly, and we would deal with it, but we would not have any kind of positive relationship with it. We do have an example. Again, I've been around so long, I was part of this also, which took place in 1968 when the Warsaw Pact nations, also afraid of democracy, not of NATO threats, but of democracy in Czechoslovakia, which had, there was something called the Prague Spring, which, which the whole Communist Party was turned on end and came in and occupied it and started an era of really cold war in Czechoslovakia, which really didn't end until 1990. And uh, what did the West do? We put fairly major sanctions on Russia. We always seem to be doing that. But uh, the, the West had relations with Czechoslovakia, but we had no positive relations with them. And, uh, and the Czechoslovakia was a sort of a pariah. Not its own fault, of course, but the people in power were, were puppets of Russia. And Czechoslovakia was a pariah, really, until the Cold War ended. And then all of a sudden, a thousand flowers bloomed. The, uh, the, the regime in Prague disappeared within three weeks and, che and Czechoslovakia had its first post-Cold War uh, president and everything was, was wonderful. But 
that was 12 years after the invasion in 1968. Um, I've, I've got a question here from my boss, Chairman of the World Affairs Council, Jim Shepard, and I'll mention that uh, uh, Jim and uh, Carl Dean, who's the Vice Chair of uh, the World, World Affairs Council here, uh, have an excellent uh, op-ed in today's Tennessean. It's online at the Tennessean. It'll be in print on uh, Monday about uh, the invasion and uh, uh, what uh, could oh, be described exactly. as a as a new Cold War. Well, Jim asks, uh, he has a comment that the recent actions by Russia have resulted in strengthening the resolve of NATO countries, and that's being noticed by countries in the region. What do you think about the prospects of Finland and Sweden joining NATO? Ah, that's very interesting. Um, I have actually worked on this issue for, I don't do it anymore because I'm not in the government, but I did work on it for 15 or 20 years. Um, Sweden in particular, not I hope exposing anyone here, as, functioned as a member of NATO for a long time. We coordinated closely. We had the, uh, um, the same goals, et cetera. Finland is a very different situation because it has a 1600 kilometer border with Russia. It fought two wars with the Soviet Union in 1940 and 41 to maintain its independence from Stalin, who simply wanted to take it over the way he wants to take over uh, Ukraine now. They drove the Soviets back and they were able to maintain their independence. And after World War II, they of course declared themselves to be neutral. And there was a term developed which the Finns really, really are angry when they hear it called Finlandization which meant, which seemed to mean to many people who said it was that a country would then appease Russia and Finland did anything but appease Russia. But at the same time, becoming being a neutral country has become part of Finland's identity. The same as Austria, by the way, which is also a neutral country. And um, they have uh, over the years said they didn't need to join NATO. They did join the European Union, however, but now, after Putin was kept saying that uh, these countries had no right to join NATO, Finland and Sweden together made a statement saying, if we want to join NATO, we're going to do it, won't. And, uh, and uh, the debate over whether to join NATO is even reopened in both Sweden and Finland. My guess is that they will not join NATO because it would be also destabilizing to the effort to, to um, solve the issues in, in, in Ukraine. But the fact is that the, both Sweden and Finland have been, shall we say, spiritual members of NATO for the last 60 years or more. Well, in a couple of minutes, I'll ask for your uh, concluding remarks, but we have a, a couple more questions. Let's uh, take a, a look around the neighborhood. Uh, Turkey, we have a, a comment about uh, Turkey being interested in caring for the uh, the Tatars uh, in that are in uh, Crimea uh, and in Ukraine. And uh, we have a question uh, from Thomas Daluj uh, about uh, Hungary. Does this uh, uh, action strategically strengthen or weaken Viktor Orban in Hungary? Or is it a wash for the political fortunes of neighbors like Orban? Well, I'll start with Hungary and then because Turkey is very interesting. Uh, Viktor Orban is a person who has been trying to define himself away from 
other European countries, partially because of uh, his own internal situation, he claims. I've had several, I've had two, not several, but I've had two long discussions with him, just not privately, but with, with just two or three people. So I think I understand at least what he says he's doing. And he's what he says he's doing is that Hungary had never had democracy before, that he's breaking Hungary out of its uh, authoritarian past. To do this, he has to have a strong and decisive government. Now, the fact is that he wins fair elections, one should say, with 70 or 75 percent of the vote each time. So there are some people in Hungary who don't think he's so bad either. Now, the, but he, as part of this independence that he had, and this is what you mentioned, he's in fact been sort of um, sidling up, as we would say in Michigan, uh, to Putin. But, and so people were wondering what his reaction to this would be. And there has been no question about his reaction. He's been a strong, positive NATO supporter. Now, Turkey is a whole different situation. It is a country which itself used to be a major empire, as Russia used to be. It controlled, I think, probably more of the Middle East than Russia controls of the European part. Of course, the Sumerian part, leave aside, that's, the, that's major. But, and and um, Erdogan, the president of uh, Turkey, has been trying to build this kind of, you know, I don't say imperial identity, but this a, a, a bigger kind of identity. He's not really succeeding. He's been hurting the economy. And if you read, believe what you read, he's, he's politically on the ropes at the moment. Now, as far as the Tatars are concerned, this is a point I made earlier. The Russian Federation is probably a minority of Russian speakers. I don't know that for a fact, but it probably is. And, uh, and there are several of these Turkic peoples who are both in the republics which came out of the Soviet Union, such as Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan and these places, but who are also in their own little autonomous regions in Russia. And Turkey has been, shall we say, flirting with these people for a long time. And I'm not sure what the Erdogan has in mind. Does he mean that as a stabilizing thing or is he trying to sort of uh, play in Russian politics in a less than positive way? I can't tell you, I don't know that. And uh, uh, let's uh, take uh, one more question and then I'll, I'll ask for your closing remarks. We're uh, coming up on uh, the top of the hour here. Uh, Vladimir Putin is uh, going to turn 70 this year, uh, notwithstanding that 70 is the new 60. Uh, 50, 50, please. Uh, 50, <laughs> 50 okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll grant that. Um, what do you see as, as the resiliency within uh, within his government for a continuation of Putinism and, and these uh, uh, these aspects of, of his regime beyond his physical presence? Well, this is, of course, uh, something that we can only speculate on. There's a very good book which was written, which I have written several uh, reviews on, um, uh, written by a former uh, correspondent of the Financial Times called uh, Putin's Network. And anybody who is interested in this subject, I can highly recommend you reading it. I, I read it and uh, it's, it, it shakes you up a little bit because it shows how the networks that the KGB and other internal intelligence agencies in Russia were used as the Soviet Union was collapsing. These people were already making their new deals even as the Soviet Union still existed. 
and they have built up networks of financial uh, connections of uh, violence, of military, whatever. They're very active in the United States, for example. And so uh, what I'm leading up to is that, unfortunately, and I think you could even criticize maybe the Clinton administration and also the Bush administration for some of this, with all of the hopes that occurred after the Soviet Union co collapsed, the traditional, not Soviet, but Russian forces for corruption, for uh, for internal uh, structures which controlled the government simply swung into force and they are still there. And so we can't, and unfortunately that's what's happened. That has now dug itself into the tissue of the Russian state. So we can't be sure what's gonna happen once Putin is not alone. There's no question about that. And he is supported as people know by a group of very rich people who also control things such as the intelligence services. And so you can't be sure what will happen when Putin leaves. But uh, Putin, uh, I'm sure, has very much in his mind the fact that uh, peaceful changes of leadership in Russia have occurred a couple of times in the last 30 years, but are not the normal way of doing things. And so he is always looking over his shoulder, I'm sure. Well, Ambassador, uh, uh, thanks so much for uh, all of your responses to these uh, terrific questions. And thanks to our participants for uh, sharing their, their thoughts and their questions with us. Um, what, uh, what can you tell us in closing that we should be uh, thinking about as this unfolds? Well, first, I'd like to join you in thanking the participants. This is really was a very good series of questions and thoughts about what's going on. I think that the most important thing right now to remember or to think about is that this crisis has blown up in our faces at a time when uh, we were facing other major crises such as COVID and also as climate change, our country has been burdened terribly by uh, fires and windstorms and snowstorms and Lord knows what uh, over the past few years. So, and, and I mentioned that we are also coming into a totally different political and social era with the digital networks, et cetera. So the world ahead of us could not be more challenging and more confusing. At the same time, the Western world, this is something that I always, I'm very determined to stress. The Western world is on top of these developments and no other part of the world is. We're doing not well at everything, but we are also dealing with them. And we have had upheavals in our own country, but we are dealing with these upheavals. And so I think the important thing for us is not to lose hope or to sometimes somehow say, as you do see, even in the um, journalistic community from time to time, that China in particular, but also Russia are overwhelming us, that they're going to uh, take our world role away from us, et cetera, et cetera. That's simply not the case. And whatever the problems that we have now in with with Russia and the sad, sad uh, behavior that they've had in, in Ukraine, we shouldn't forget that in the 30 years since the, the cold, end of the Cold War, we have been able to build a democratic community which stretches from the Russian border in the east of Europe at the Baltic States, but also the Ukrainian border, all the way around the world to the border between Alaska and Russia. In other words, 
the world democratic community now and with, with small problems, it is a democratic community, encircles the globe. And uh, that is something that we could never have imagined 30 or 35 years ago. In fact, we would have thought exactly the opposite. There are major challenges. The biggest one is of course, China. It is determined to set forth a system which is not based on freedom of choice, freedom of expression, tolerance, and democratic government. It is, it is the Chinese traditions are very different and China and this, the new China is trying to do that. And we have Russia, which is not on the upswing at the moment, but declining empires are often even more dangerous than rising empires. So it's not that we're not faced with challenges and of course, uh, epidemics and, uh, and, uh, and climate change are something which are gonna be with us essentially forever. And so there's no reason to be uh, overly optimistic, but there is absolutely no reason to be pessimistic either. We're doing well at this. And the fact that our European allies and we were able to meet this crisis rapidly and in a unified way should show you how important uh, this all is both to us, but how important it is also to the, the democratic community, which we have been able to build around the world. To be sure. Thanks, Ambassador uh, John Kornboom, for being with us today and our previous conversations. And thanks to our participants for joining, joining us. Uh, continue to follow our newsletter for new programs on this and other global issues and the resources we share. Just go to TNWAC.org and you can sign up for the newsletter there. Also, uh, I'm sure if you're watching this program, you're probably keeping up with uh, developments uh, otherwise, but uh, please uh, take a look at the many good sources of information. There are podcasts, video programs, uh, think tanks are uh, endlessly putting out uh, good speakers on these programs. Uh, it's important that we stay up to date on what's going on in, in this uh, crisis and other developments around the world. As, as the ambassador mentioned, we have many things going on, the pandemic, climate change, and, and so forth, and, and they're worthy of your attention, whether it's through the Tennessee World Affairs Council or other media. Uh, so we also ask that, uh, once again, that you please support the work of the Tennessee World Affairs Council by contributing at tnwac.org slash donate. Uh, lastly, I'll mention that Ambassador Kornblum has graciously agreed uh, to join us again next week um, on uh, Wednesday, March 2nd, 10 a.m. Central Time, and we'll uh, get an update on what's going on in the uh, uh, unfolding crisis in Ukraine as a result of the Russian invasion. Again, uh, Ambassador Kornblum, thank you for uh, being with us today. I thank you very much. And I greetings to everyone in Nashville, which has we, become by far my favorite city in the United States. Well, we look forward to your return. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're enjoying Berlin, uh, but uh, we'll, we'd like to see you here in, in Nashville as well. And thanks for your support of the World Affairs Council. Uh, thanks again to all our, our participants and uh, those who contributed uh, to the World Affairs Council today. Everyone have a great day. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you.